August 18, 1920, was an important day in United States history. Does anyone know why? What happened on August 18, 1920? Yeah, what do you think? Hey, hey, she's right. Woohoo! Yes, it was the day that the 19th Amendment was adopted, securing women the right to vote. This was a very hard-fought victory for the suffragettes after years of advocacy and organizing, which required not only the commitment and sacrifice of many women, but also the partnership of a lot of men. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I think we have an image of her and Susan B. Anthony here. The, the two of them and other women first testified before the Senate in support of what was commonly known as the Anthony Amendment after activist Susan B. Anthony, not in 1920, but the first time they testified before the Senate, it was 42 years earlier, in 1878. The initial bill sat in committee for nearly a decade. Until it was finally brought forward for a vote, the Senate rejected the amendment when it was first proposed in a 16 to 34 vote in 1887. Following a pretty major setback with that came three decades of arduous organizing and making the case for women's suffrage. So the leaders of the movement took a state-by-state -state strategy. Okay, we have a map here that kind of shows how that was laid out. All right, they went state-by-state, state, focusing on getting the women to the right to vote in individual states before trying again for a constitutional amendment. So in 1910 and 1911, serious headway was made as both Washington State and California adopted women's suffrage, with many other Western states then following suit. And while the progress was certainly encouraging, when the amendment came up for a vote again before the Senate in 1914, again it was rejected. By 1918, the leaders of the movement had secured the support of the President of the United States, who was then Woodrow Wilson, and they urged the Senate to adopt the measure. But in spite of that important boost of having the President's support, the bill failed by two votes. In February of the next year, it was put forward again, and it failed by one vote. There was desire to get this done before the 1920 presidential election, and so once again, the bill was put forward in June 1919, so like 100 years ago this June. And after considerable discussion, it was finally passed by the Senate. But as you may know, constitutional amendments must also be ratified by all the states. Okay, so this process took over a year, with the Southern Democrats being the most challenging holdouts. When the final state to sign on, Tennessee, ratified the amendment, it was August 18th, 1920, and women in the United States had finally secured the right to vote. Nearly 150 years after the nation's founding, 55 years after the 13th Amendment was passed to free the black slaves, and 50 years after the 15th Amendment was passed, guaranteeing the vote to male citizens of all races and ethnicities. So that was a long, hard-fought victory for equality for women, one which helped to lay the groundwork for an election like the one we had in 2018, in which more women were sent to Washington as representatives to Congress than we have yet had in our history. So here's a question for you. It's been almost 100 years since the 19th Amendment was adopted. Today, 
If men, as a group, wanted to take away women's rights to vote, could they do that? What do you think? Perhaps it would be good to reflect on how far women have come in entering the seats of power to make that decision. Okay, like I said, last year's midterm election was notable for a number of reasons. First, it had like record turnout for a midterm, right? And as often been the case in recent years, women made up the numerical majority of the voters. The election was celebrated for its success in electing the most women to Congress we've ever had. And yet, even with our record-breaking level of representation, women still only make up 23% of the House of Representatives. We only make up 25% of the Senate, a third of the Supreme Court, and we have never held the highest office in the land. As social scientist Robin DiAngelo points out, despite our discomfort with this reality, we have to recognize that if men as a group wanted to, they could totally take away women's rights to vote. They could block women from running for office. Because despite our gains, men as a group still hold the vast majority of the power. This is the definition of oppression. Oppression goes beyond prejudice. It goes beyond individual interactions. It goes beyond bias. Oppression, and we'll put this on the screen, involves pervasive historical political relationships between social groups. It includes prejudice plus power. Prejudice plus power. Men and women may hold historic prejudices against each other, right? Women can be biased against men, for sure. A lot of them are. But in societies that place men in power, known as patriarchies, only men as a group have the power to oppress women, right? In the 40-plus year fight for women to gain the vote, the vote was only gained by gaining the support of men. Men were the only ones with the power to grant the, the right to the women. And statistically, men still 100 years later have the power to take it away. Now, I'm not saying this is a call to fear. I live in very much in hope that a majority of men in power aren't actually interested in taking away women's rights to vote. But the little thought exercise brings up a reality that I think feels really real right now. The truth is the oppression of patriarchy is still very potent. And I was working on this teaching before I knew what was going to happen in the news this week. Right? This fight is live right now, folks, as states are mounting new challenges to reproductive rights. Now, whatever your personal feelings about abortion are, and I'm not here to tell you what they should be, because I get it's complicated, but we have to acknowledge that reproductive rights are clearly issues that impact women most directly. And yet, men still hold the vast majority of the power in determining what rights women should have over their reproductive systems. I'm sure you've heard about the law that was passed in Alabama. That's a state where women make up 51% of the voting population. And yet, this extreme law that criminalizes abortion that was passed was passed by a governing body that's 85% male. The patriarchy is alive and well. Patriarchy is a mode of oppression that I think many of us have identified and would reject, right? We've been 
perhaps to the marches that say smash the patriarchy. But are we aware of what lies behind the patriarchy? What feeds it? Can we really be rid of it? Can we smash the patriarchy if we don't know what gives it life? What nurtures it? Well, this is the second teaching in a new series I'm calling Smashing Idols, where we're looking at the ancient practice of idolatry and we're considering if perhaps our capacity to make convincing idols hasn't gone away. Maybe it's simply just evolved. I'm suggesting that perhaps idols in our day look less like statues that we carve Yeah, we feel it. I'm suggesting perhaps idols in our day look less like statues that we carve and more like the way we elevate certain perspectives. Or you could say certain frames and lenses, metaphorically, with which we view the world. Perhaps this is just our way of ordering our reality and making the world work for us in the same way that our ancient fathers and mothers tried to do that with these statues, with these icons. Instead of entrusting ourselves to a transcendent personal being, divinity. Today I want to focus on a way of viewing the world that has had powerful influence throughout history and I would argue is what feeds the oppressive system we call patriarchy. And this view is known as androcentrism. Androcentrism. If you're taking notes, if you're using the handouts, which are completely optional, there's pens in the back though if you're interested, um, this is the first word to fill in here. Androcentrism, it's a bookish word. You generally just uh, encounter it in the academic sphere, but I think it's really helpful for us to understand if we're going to talk about what feeds patriarchy, because this is the practice, conscious or otherwise, of placing a masculine point of view at the center of one's worldview, culture, and history, and thereby culturally marginalizing femininity. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Androcentrism, this is the Wikipedia definition, folks, so it must be real, right? Androcentrism is the practice, conscious or otherwise, of placing a masculine point of view at the center of one's worldview, culture, and history, thereby culturally marginalizing femininity. What does that mean? Translation, layman's terms. Androcentrism is the idea that what is culturally considered masculine is normal and good, and what is culturally considered feminine is other or less than. Make sense? Male is normal. Female is something different. Androcentrism was the worldview that permeated the United States and made it so difficult for women to secure the vote. Androcentrism meant that doctors for centuries (laughs) used male bodies as their reference points. It meant that academics in our nation's leading universities researched questions and interpreted findings that reinforced the idea that men were innately more capable of leadership. Psychiatrists based definitions of mental health on the men they worked with. Historians exclusively told the story of thoughts, interests, and actions of men. 
and the effects of such pervasive, long-standing androcentrism means that the centering of maleness is still very much with us. I mean, here in the Bay Area, right, the tech industry is booming. But its version of success has a very male flavor to it, right? Emily Chang is the author of the recent book, Brotopia. And she describes the industry in this way. Silicon Valley companies have largely been created in the image of their mostly young, mostly male, mostly childless founders. So expectations of heroic long hours assume the employees aren't concerned with like children at home. Companies that encourage, seriously, this is true, work-related trips to strip clubs and Silicon Valley sex parties obviously make women feel pretty unwelcome. And so it should be no surprise that women only make up 25% of the tech workforce and they leave jobs in computers and engineering at twice the rate as men do. And of course it goes way beyond tech, right? You've heard of like the Bechtel test in regards to film, the recognition in film that the majority of our leading protagonists are male. That's a result of androcentrism. Many women who are succeeding in classically male-dominated spaces, finance, other business spaces, academia, they recognize that their success is still within the frameworks of androcentrism as they adopt more classically masculine ways of interacting or presenting themselves and they minimize overly feminine characteristics, they tend to have more success career-wise. Women might achieve, but it's it's generally as they play down their womanhood, right? This James Franco meme, I think, illustrates it well. If you can't read the words, it says this. Girls can wear jeans and cut their hair short, wear shorts and boots because it's okay to be a boy. But for a boy to look like a girl is degrading because you think being a girl is degrading. There's truth to that, right? Perhaps this shows the insidious way androcentrism works not only to create vulnerability for women, but for men who would express their gender differently, and particularly for trans and non-binary women, right? Trans women, non-binary folks. I don't think we can deny the power of androcentrism in our culture. The question I'm interested in, in this context, as a community of faith, is how has androcentrism impacted our experience of faith? Has androcentrism created an idol that keeps us from seeing the true God clearly and worshiping an image of God that's not actually authentic instead? And I'm basically going to argue today that it has. I believe androcentrism has created a powerful idol. And we need look no further to understand that than to examine the way that most of us have been socialized to think of the gender of God. Right? If you're like me, in church, you've been told much of your life that God is like beyond gender. Right? 
God is genderless. God is neither male nor female. God is both and. God's above and beyond. Male and female are both made in the image of God. Perhaps somebody quoted this to you from Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But while this has long been affirmed, in the very same breath, it's negated, right? In all the language we use about God. Masculine persons are the images. He is the pronoun. In his own image, God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Right? And then we have all of these images that we understand as masculine. God the Father, God the Son, God as Lord, God as King, God as Shepherd, God as Husband, Bridegroom. Again and again, God may be beyond gender, but somehow God is definitely a he. Right? Theologian Elizabeth Johnson believes this itself is actually a form of idolatry. A God that has consistently been affirmed throughout Jewish and Christian thought as being beyond imagining, beyond any human conception, consistently represented instead simplistically and reduced to maleness. She says it this way. Okay, this is like theological language, but here, here we go. Normative conceptualization of God in analogy with male reality alone is the equivalent of the graven image, a finite representation being taken for and worshiped as the whole. What is violated is both the creature's limitation and the unknowable transcendence of the true God. You hear me? You hear her? Let me translate. When we cast God as a man, we forget how limited men are to represent God. And we forget how big, different, and mysterious our God actually is. You with me? We for, it's like both things are being done wrong. Right? We're wronging men to think that they can actually represent God, and we're wronging God by, by only looking at a part of God, right? We forget how limited men are to represent God, and we forget how big, different, and mysterious our God is. Instead, we worship an idol, and we call it God. Let's start by considering the second of these, or the last of these points, that to cast God as a man means we forget how mysterious God is. Okay? Throughout our tradition and our texts, there's been an emphasis on the holiness of God. What does that mean? It really means otherness uniqueness. When we sing holy, 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 we're saying set apart one, different one, one who is beyond our imagining, one who is something utterly different than we can even conceive. All of our words for God will always fall short because they can never truly name this sacred, creative, loving force that we call God. As the early Christian thinker Augustine pointed out, it is easier to say what God is not than what God is. It is easier to say what God is not than what God is. He says, if we have understood, then what we have understood is not God. If we have understood, then what we have understood is not God. Humble yourselves, folks. You don't get it, this God. 
You cannot really get this God. Okay? This is why God didn't want God's followers to try to create images and worship them. I believe God's call to not create idols was a call to not only turn, not turn their attention elsewhere. It wasn't just about putting their attention somewhere else. It was also about not reducing God, God's self, Yahweh, to something they could master. Right? It's a both. Yes, God wants us to focus on God, but God doesn't want us to try to make divinity work for us, right? God doesn't want us to put God in that container. Instead, God calls God's followers to simply worship this God as Yahweh, which means I am. I exist. Worship this deity not as male, not as female, simply the one who is. Beyond everything else that's been created in time, this divine force we call God is. But God as a force that's unimaginable, not ever really knowable, obviously that's like hard to connect with, right? How do you relate to that? And so we have the reality that God uses signs and symbols that are indeed and like self-acknowledged, limited. They are limited. Human languages are limited. Culturally bound metaphors are limited, and yet the divine uses these to try to communicate with us, to try to nurture real connection with us, to come to our level, right? And speaking to a culture that was steeped in androcentrism and patriarchy, should we be surprised that many of these signs and metaphors that we have recorded in our sacred texts were masculine, right? That's not a surprise. An androcentric group of mostly men trying to connect with an unknowable deity came to understand that God through the lenses they saw the world through, and they wrote it down. And we call it our Bible, right? And then these androcentric men going forward interpreted those texts for us for centuries. They were our priests, our bishops, theologians, pastors. God as a loving parent is understood as God as a loving father. God as a family member who's with us and for us becomes our brother. God as one to be worshipped for God's ultimate capacity to hold all of creation in God's metaphorical hands is worshipped as a king. These representations aren't surprising. And I would say they're not even wrong as metaphors. They're fine but they're incomplete. They're definitely incomplete. Yet the idol of androcentrism makes it hard for us to say this out loud, right? Those of us who are steeped in Christian tradition will feel weird, perhaps, not using male pronouns for God. Maybe like we're doing something wrong. We're borrowing from a tradition that's not okay, right? It was a couple of years ago, the first time we had this Smashing Idols conversation, that I first really examined the effect that androcentrism had had on my own spirituality. And I recognized I had totally normalized the maleness of God. I had totally normalized acknowledging that God is beyond gender, but imagining God as a heterosexual cisgender male kind of genderless God. I had normalized that through the songs I had sung, through the scriptures I had read, 
the prayers I'd been taught to pray, the sermons I had heard, and the ones I had even preached. You listen to my sermons a few years back, and there are male pronouns all over the place that I used without even thinking about it. I had normalized it because, in part, I had been rewarded for using male language of God. And I had actually been warned off from challenging that. I remember being asked to give a teaching in a church setting not long after I had become a mom. This was one of the first chances I had to preach. I'm fresh off the experience of childbirth about 13 years ago. I was filled with wonder and a passion to talk about what I had learned of the divine through giving birth. You see, birth was an extremely spiritual experience for me, especially the first time. Laboring and delivering without pain medication, I came to the end of myself. It, it pushed me beyond what I thought I could do. But I also felt this profound unity with God in the midst of it, bringing life to my son delivering my son. I had this profound experience of bringing forth life through great travail, through great pain. I understood in a way that I never had a love that cost something. I understood the power of the cross in a way I never could have imagined before. It upended my spirituality. And yet, as I prepared to teach, and I shared with some of my pastors and mentors what I was working on. I was warned not to speak too directly any comparisons between myself as a birthing mother and God. Meditating on the motherness of God was threatening to the fatherness of God. So it had to be discouraged. But like how many times have I heard male pastors compare their experiences of fatherhood with the fatherhood of God? Never has anyone called that inappropriate. I think if you had asked those pastors who rewarded me for keeping my metaphors male, they would say that they were trying to keep me from misrepresenting God. But I've come to believe I don't think it was the image of the divine they were actually protecting. I think it was the image of a particular God that has been created, one that actually looks a lot like them. I say this now as a female pastor, preached to throughout my life, mostly by men, formed by theology predominantly written by men, and I'm grateful for it. I'm not trying to say I'm not grateful for the contributions of these men of God in my life, but I have also come to believe that the exclusively male conception of God is actually an idol, steeped in androcentrism. And honestly, I think it's a really damaging idol. One that has been used to bolster systems of patriarchy for thousands of years. Just personally, this idol has told me that I have less capacity to reflect God's image, less authority to lead, less ability to interpret God's word, less wisdom to impart. This idol kept me for years from believing the ministry was even worth considering as a vocation because this idol told me my offerings would always be limited because of my gender. I also stand here recognizing I can't give you the full answer as to what we do then. 
How do we move forward? What are we to do with a Bible that employs so many male metaphors of God? Do we, like, not use the Bible? I don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. Do we simply cease to use those metaphors? What pronouns are appropriate? What does it mean that Jesus, who we call the revelation of God, came not just as any human being, but as a particular human being, and that being had like a penis, like that was a male being, right? What do we do with that? I know that question is there, and I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's a conversation we've been trying to have for the last year and a half or so, and we're going to keep having. And I've been meeting conversation partners outside of this community in that time that make me encouraged that this is a broader movement that is happening in the greater church. But we're still early in even naming that it's an issue. Very early. But I do have one clear answer today that I think we begin with. And it has to do with that first problem Elizabeth Johnson, the theologian, identified. That men are limited in their capacity to represent God. We have to acknowledge that. And I believe we get closer to seeing God when we are willing to represent God with both male and female imagery. We have to start there. Recognizing that both are simply metaphor and not actually naming who God is. Right? We get closer to seeing God when we're willing to represent God with both male and female imagery. Recognizing both are simply metaphor and not actually naming who God is. And here's the best part. We don't have to make this stuff up. We don't have to draw on some tradition that's not ours exclusively. God has done it, God's self, in our very tradition. While yes, the texts that make up our Bible were composed in cultures that were certainly androcentric, just the same. There is surprising imagery of God as female woven throughout our sacred texts. It's there throughout our texts from the Hebrew Bible all the way through the New Testament. Here's one for you. Isaiah 42. God stunningly does of God's self the same thing, the same thing I was told not to do. God is portrayed as a laboring woman. But how often have we heard this preached from the pulpit, right? I never have. Isaiah proclaims the word of God saying this, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them, make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Here Isaiah shows us, God is a laboring mother who will not be silenced and cannot be stopped as she makes a way for her children to come into life. It is transition, folks. Women, you know what I'm saying. If you've had a baby, you know that moment. There is a moment where ain't nothing going to get in your way. That baby is coming, and if anyone tries to get in your way, they better watch out. That's the image. The woman who moves to crying out, gasping, panting, laying waste, 
because this thing has to come from darkness to light. This thing, this God is bringing forth, must have life. But strikingly, those who will not worship her as she is, those who insist on worshiping a mere image and not God in God's fullness, they cannot enter the life she is offering. This passage isn't alone. Elsewhere, God is portrayed in scripture as a nursing mother, as a hen gathering her chicks. The prophet Hosea describes God as a mama bear who ferociously protects her cubs and is fierce with anyone who tries to hurt them. Jesus himself at one time uses a pair of metaphors in his parables to speak of how God feels when the lost are found. One's a male metaphor, a shepherd finding a lost sheep. The other is a female one, a woman celebrating because she's found a lost coin, right? All scholars will agree this is the same story, just told in two different ways, right? But how many of us have seen the picture on the wall of the church of God our shepherd? Have any of us seen a picture of God, the woman who found the lost coin? No. Uh Uh-uh. Same story, different gender. One gets told and celebrated, one gets minimized, right? In another parable, Jesus speaks of God's kingdom spreading, being like the yeast in dough that a woman is kneading. God, in the metaphor, is the woman working the dough, allowing the kingdom to spread. That's not even touching on the feminine conceptions of the Holy Spirit or personified wisdom we have throughout the Bible. I mean, there's this rich history in the Hebrew Bible and in other Jewish texts of the era, a rich history of seeing wisdom personified as a woman. The word is Sophia in Greek. And for many early Christians, that female personification of wisdom was understood to be the second person of the Trinity. The person who would come in flesh as a man named Jesus. So from this view that many early Christians held, Jesus holds within his male body the feminine wisdom known as Sophia. Jesus, while being historically male, wasn't defined by his maleness, but brought the conceptions of male and female together. Whew, right? How often have you heard that one preached? Likewise, many words used in the Bible for the Holy Spirit are feminine. Again, speaking against an exclusively male value of God. But this one, I think, is particularly interesting. Lots of us know the Holy Spirit was represented by a dove, right? Descending from the heavens, alighting on Jesus at his baptism. But what we weren't told was that the symbol of the dove in the ancient world was actually connected with the goddess Aphrodite. It was her cultic symbol. Okay, so to see the spirit expressed as a dove communicated to the people of Jesus' day that the spirit was a distinctly feminine kind of sacred power. She was sacred feminine, haha, as my shirt says. The spirit was sacred feminine. People of the day understood that. When I first began researching feminine imagery of the divine in our Bible, One of my favorite discoveries was another one I never came across in six years of seminary. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the people of God would speak of God's compassionate care 
for Israel, God's mercy. And the word often used for compassion or mercy in the Hebrew Bible is rakum. Rakum. What most of us who don't speak Hebrew miss is that this word also refers to a mother's womb. It means mercy of the womb. This affection, this mercy, this compassion that God has for God's people is being compared to how a mother regards the child in her womb. A womb love. That kind of intimacy. According to the Hebrew Bible, God holds us in a womb of affection and considers us with that level of intimacy and connection to herself. This is the exact term being used when David, the great king of Israel, a male ex example to a patriarchal culture, if there ever was one, hero of the faith for his heart connection to God, right? He prayed this term in Psalm 51, after David's great sin with Bathsheba, a time when he abused his power, toxic masculinity was on display. He took a woman he shouldn't have taken. Essence of patriarchy here. And then David repents and calls upon the womb of God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, in Psalm 51, according to your unfailing love, according to your great womb love. That word compassion. That's the word, and to your great rachum, your womb love for me. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David is appealing to God, his mother. He's cleansed by his mother's mercy. It was a couple of years ago that I gave myself permission for the first time to appeal to God, my mother to meditate, to mama God, to just center my prayer and my attention on the motherhood of God. And it broke something. I was overwhelmed by a sense of safety, a sense of unconditional care, a sense of nurturance that I had never felt. But with that was also so much grief that I had never allowed myself to feel it. That I'd never even been aware what I was missing. That I'd never experienced true rachum. And I've had pushback in this community since beginning to find ways to speak to that. There have been folks who've said, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't think God is a mom. And I get that. Dr. Christina Cleveland has been on her own journey of connecting with the sacred feminine, specifically through a womanist lens, which, if you're not aware, is the name generally used for black feminism. And this lens, she did a series of reflections based on the last words of Christ that she called Christ our black mother. You can't maybe see the dress that well here, but her dress is one of a black woman on the cross. And after announcing the series, one of her followers on social media posed this question, so do you literally believe Jesus was a black woman and that God is female? Or is that just a creative abstract idea trying to understand? 
Christina responded, I don't tend to think literally when it comes to the divine. I think metaphor is all we have, and that is mysteriously plenty. And so is God a black woman? Yeah. For sure, that metaphor is rich, and it is true. And we need to be able to celebrate more metaphors that are not cisgender, heterosexual white men. Because that one is limited. Metaphor is all we have. God, the word God, that's a symbol. Any way we name the divine will never be literal. It's always metaphor. It's always just another way of naming that which is beyond all names. So I believe this is one of the ways we begin to counter the idol of androcentrism. As we start to normalize other images, right? We include them. We don't need to do away with all the masculine metaphors for God, but we do need to celebrate both kinds of metaphors, more kinds of metaphors. Proclaim them boldly. Have a bigger kind of picture, a mosaic of how we represent the divine. So we can hold up that, yes, God can be represented as a man and also a woman. And we need to recognize both. And perhaps non-binary would even be the best, right? We hold all of these intention, all of these images are only images. They're only signs. They're only symbols. They don't actually communicate all of God's essence. The truth is, even in a very androcentric, patriarchal world, God has always honored herself being represented with feminine imagery. And at the same time, patterns have clearly emerged over time in our tradition. And this has also broken my heart to study, where you can see the points where male teachers of the faith begin to obscure, to diminish, to actively suppress those feminine sacred images. And so they have become lost to us, many of them. Many of us don't remember any of those things I just said because there was an actual agenda that asked the church to forget. And that's a tragedy. How many women of faith have suffered throughout the ages because they've been deprived of the dignity of being full image bearers of the divine? How many of us have left the church altogether because we believed that there was no real place to celebrate ourselves in this context? And yet, how many men have been corrupted by the lie as well? Because the truth is, androcentrism does not just harm women who are made to believe they're not full image bearers of God. It harms men, too. Toxic masculinity is the way this idol produces in men a false sense of what it means to be a man, elevating certain characteristics over others, calling those ones good, usually characteristics connected with strength, power, dominance, while the characteristics that are generally more connected to emotional sensitivity, cooperative care, affection for others, those tend to be suppressed, called unnatural, shamed. I believe the shattering of this idol of androcentrism and the dismantling of sexism and patriarchy 
are totally necessary for men, for women, for gender, queer, cisgender, transgender folks, all to find flourishing and recognize in themselves the beauty of God's creation and the womb-like love of their creator. Amen? Because all of us are created in the image of God. Black, white, Latinx, Asian, queer, straight, male, female. May we continue to be a part of the revealing of God's presence in our midst. And may we turn from the false idols to cast God in our own image, but journey together to see God more fully for who God is. Amen. Amen.